Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Tusharika Dekka. I am a final year PhD student at the University of Nottingham. Today, I'll be speaking to a very special guest, uh, Dr. Ajay Gudavarti. We will be discussing his latest book, Politics, Ethics and Emotions in New India, published by Routledge 2022. Uh, Dr. Gudavadi is an associate professor at the Center for Political Studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. Most academics working on South Asian politics are very familiar with Ajay's work, have either read his work, cited his work, worked with him, or are friends with him on Facebook. Thank you so much, Ajay, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tusharika. Thanks for the invite and uh, looking forward to this uh, conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, Ajay, before we you know, get into the details about your book, uh, tell me a bit about yourself and what is your intellectual inspiration behind the book? Well, I mean, uh, Tusharika, I have been engaged with you know, social activists and organizations uh, fairly for a very long time. You know, in my, uh, my family has a kind of an activist background. So it, that's the broad background that I do some kind of a lived uh, political theory. That's what perhaps you could best uh, refer to it as. Uh, and as you know, last decade or so in Indian politics has been uh, somewhat a kind of a, a very distinct phenomena from what we have witnessed in the last five decades. Uh, that was the starting point as to really uh, this yawning sense that there is, uh, there is something that we are missing uh, in theorizing the current phenomena, where which has kind of smudged the, uh, no, the, the the difference between popular politics, uh, emotive mobilizations, and governance, it's kind of brought uh, popular politics directly into the registers of uh, governance. You know, the earlier uh, much of writing on South Asia, as you would be familiar with, which is broadly. You know, said to be some kind of post-colonial kind of writing, uh, you know, pitched popular politics as an alternative to the liberal, rational uh, modes of governance. But today we don't have that privilege, you know, that popular politics is itself, the folk politics is, has itself become the mode of governance. And that, I think, has really changed uh, much of uh, many of the things that we are really looking at, you know. So the kinds of questions of uh, liberalism, notions of equality and uh, things of that kind have uh, taken a completely different turn in the last uh, decade or so. And I I believe that this is a long-term shift in Indian politics. And that's my starting point uh, of my uh, writing. Oh, fantastic. I know. Uh, very, very interesting. And, you know, before we get into the details and nitty gritties of the book, I know I would like to point out one thing. And what I really like about the book is that uh, from a very personal point of view, I'm a strong believer in the fact that emotion plays a very strong role in politics. Um, and, you know, we often look at emotions from in a psychological perspective or a philosophical perspective. But I've always felt that there have been, you know, limitations in using it from a political lens. And I would really want to congratulate you for doing that and you know as we move on to the each of the themes of your book um, and how they fit into the framework of new india I want to give a background to our listeners about how the book is segregated, not giving away much details, of course. Um, So the book is divided into three sections, uh, politics and emotions, uh, economy and ethics, and ethical emotions. So 
you know, when I was reading the first section um, of your book, I know it kind of took me back to the work of James Baldwin and Hannah Arden, and of course, her critic of Baldwin's work. I found this section very fascinating, and you discuss about the social media optics and the communicative, you know, practices of the BJP and Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his team, and how have they been successful in using emotions to run popular narrative. Um, so, in page twenty-two of your book, you have written that you know one popular narrative is that his intentions are right. I would want you to explain a bit about this section as to how you have waved the debate academically. Is this emotion rational, public irrational for politics and particularly for a democracy like India? Yeah, that's a good uh, question, uh, Tusharika. You know, the intention is a very interesting how the current regime has mobilized it. You know, they have this slogan which says Saf Niyat and uh, Sahi Vikas, which broadly translates into clean intent and uh, good development or inclusive uh, development. Uh, so I think this idea that intention plays a role, you know, in much of critical theory, you know, uh, those of us familiar with writings of Axel Honneth, critical theorist, where he argues that uh, moral injury is uh, caused by intentional actions of individuals, you know, that therefore intention, I think, plays a very key role in our, uh, in, in the way we negotiate with uh, everyday politics. And if you look at uh, even uh, Indian history, you know, uh, more contemporary history, if you look at uh, uh, the extraordinary laws, for instance, like UAPA or POTA and other extraordinary laws, uh, state exceptionalism is based on criminalizing intention. You know, that uh, It's not the act, but they criminalize your intent of causing injury. Uh, so this intention, the business of intention, uh, I think is at the heart of uh, right-wing project currently in India because it takes you into a very uncertain domain, uh, a domain that is not verifiable uh, to empirics. You know, that, you know, how do you verify what is somebody's intention? Uh, and it can cut both, both ways. You know, on one hand, you have an instance of extraordinary laws being imposed on people uh, in terms of criminalizing intention. On the other hand, you can have somebody like Bhagat Singh in history who defended himself saying that his intention was not to cause death, you know, during that famous case of uh, 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 the here bombing that where he was involved in. So I think this is a case where a clear case which breaks from the liberal proclivity with rationality. You know, I think here motivations uh, replace uh, rational calculations and uh, intention is being projected as some kind of a sole force that this uh, current regime has, uh, that they, they intend to do something uh, uh, something very big, some big crime transformation they are out here to bring about. Uh, and that is closely linked on one end to an idea of hope, you know, this idea of achedin, that, that the future is something they are going to change in a very big way. Uh, uh, but intention, I say, I mean, as I argue in the book, that it can also be linked to other things like, you know, uh, I think this entire right-wing eco-chamber of creating conspiracies uh, is also something to link with uh, intention. Now, if you remember Mr. Modi's uh, political campaign speeches during Gujarat elections, he said that there were some people like uh, former prime minister, vice president who took Supari, uh, no, uh, from somebody across the border. So intention can also be linked into this kind of a conspiracy and things of that kind. So I think it takes us into really a, a different way of framing. And interesting part is that people are hooked 
hooked on to this kind of uh, an understanding, a kind of a framing of an unverifiable uh, no, nature. And Indian you know, South Asian history has a long starting with Gandhi, Gandhi's mobilization around soul force. I think we have had a long history of this kind of a mobilization. Uh, and therefore, I think we need to take uh, emotions, you know, therefore, as you said, this idea of uh, uh, the emotions is not merely experiential, but I think emotions are also deeply evaluative, you know, as Martha Nussbaum and others have argued that uh, emotions have to be treated as uh, moral appraisals. Uh, and therefore, uh, emotions, uh, uh, other writers like Jaspers uh, argue emotions are closely linked to morality. So uh, so I think if you, you'll have to look at this, the attempt in the book has been to look at the link between interests, ethics uh, and uh, emotions, putting them together. In, in a sense, arguing that emotions are neither beyond interest nor are they irrational. So that takes us to very elusive and a very uncertain slippery ground, you know, that uh, Things always cut both ways. And that has been my attempt in the book to look at how there are both opportunities and great illiberal possibilities in the way uh, right wing has been mobilizing around uh, questions of emotions. Oh, fantastic. And so rightly done, actually. You know, um, and, you know, it's talked about Achedin, and <laughs> which is kind of interesting because uh, the next section where you discuss about the economy and ethics, and you've talked about, uh, you know, how the BJP has tried to connect nationalism with the economy, right? Um, and the dominance of this cultural majoritarianism has superseded the priorities of economic growth and development. Would you elaborate a bit more about it? And how do you see this cultural symbolism is connected to this economic framework well yeah that's a that's i think as a, a very important question to understand uh, cultural majoritarianism in the indian context now to, to begin with i think the uh, the ground rule has been that there has been a cultural framing of uh, economic questions there are no base bare economic issues uh, under this regime every economic policy uh, was couched uh, within a certain uh, cultural value system, so to say. Okay? Uh, for instance, so, uh, social behavior like nudge theory. You, I mean, you do IR, so you would know nudge theory is connected to economic performance and outcomes. So policies are located in cultural values and effects, not uh, institutional procedures and data. A law, for instance, is located in popular opinions and perceptions and not uh, evidence and precedence. You know, that's the kind of the shift that uh, this regime uh, brought in. But the problem has been that this cultural values that we are talking about are uh, fairly majoritarian in their content, which obviously means that uh, they are here to build a kind of an hierarchical uh, social order. So right has two variants of this, you know, historically of justifying this kind of hierarchical social order. One is a kind of sublimation, you know, that that some people are kind of born superior, you know, they have superior abilities. The other has been some kind of a naturalization that, you know, uh, this is how things are and we better get used to it. You know, these are the two dimensions of how right builds on a hierarchical order. Uh, BJP does the latter in terms of naturalization and RSS believes in the former that some castes and races are superior to each other. Uh, so in, in this sense that uh, there's a unique, uh, we one needs to argue why cultural majoritarianism seems to be reinforcing neoliberal proclivities uh, in the Indian context. So that's a very complex question as to 
uh, how does it really work the way BJP and the right wing uh, envisages that can this cultural majoritarian cultural nationalist politics go with uh, neoliberal development. So at the level of ethics, I think there is a certain kind of a reinforcement that happens at certain levels. But one could also see the kind of economic crisis that this regime uh, went into. Now, if you go back to 2014, uh, Prime Minister Modi's appeal was uh, a Hindutva based on certain kind of an idea of big growth and big development. But that kind of fell apart by 2019. You know, India went into a terminal economic crisis. There is a big time recession. There is inflation. Uh, GDP is in the minus growth. Uh, there is high time, 45 year, all time high unemployment, so on and so forth. So that's where one needs to question that. Uh, why is it that this kind of a majoritarian social order and uh, economic development are kind of canceling out each other? So it could be possible that this kind of uh, majority in order, I mean, I've written elsewhere that you know, it often encourages a lot of mediocrity. It undermines institutional autonomy uh, and therefore hyper-nationalist desires uh, seem to be blocking growth and development because market uh, at some point will require exchange relations, some institutional frame, some predictability of outcomes. But here you have an order that is uh, that indulges in what I refer to as righteous lawlessness. You know that you know one group kind of undermining other groups would naturally have certain social outcomes, and therefore I think they're also running into a problem. Therefore, today if you see uh, after 2019, 2024, the, as we run run up to 2024, there is no talk of development. You know, it's all about hyper nationalism, kind of replaced. Uh, the that kind of a balance which they wish to achieve. So in one sense, economic performance is the buffer nationalism requires uh, against diversity. That they felt that that kind of undermining of diversity they could have managed by uh, talk of big time growth and uh, development. Once that uh, you know that uh, shield is out, that there is no big time development happening. Uh, what would hyper nationalism? And nationalist desires now begin to look like is a question that could be relevant at this point. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. You're almost saying that it's used as an alternative to development, right? Whenever you're going to question about it, it's almost put under the carpet and you are, you know, diverted towards different other aspects to it, if that's a way of looking at it. Um, also, you know, I would tell you that, you know, I must confess that my understanding about economics is a bit limited. So when I was reading it and I was trying to connect it with so many things and I could feel that, you know, I could see the intertwining of or how it is connecting, you know, the, the emotion part of it, and which is quite interesting. So thank you for that. Um, well, we move to the next section. And this is actually my favorite part of the book. And, you know, this is about ethical emotions. Um, so in page uh, 105, and you have discussed that, and I've, I've co- I'm quoting this. So everything under Hindutva is about creating a majoritarian political system that is not just against the minorities, religious or otherwise, but is against the majority in the sense of bringing everything under control. The fight against Hindutva is complex because it has to look for the correct kind of entry point, which is not readily available, but has to be created by political resistance that includes the majority that has conflicting interests. Uh, Now, what are the entry points that you are referring to here? And what is that the opposition or for that matter, you know, any of the regional parties should particularly focus on if for that matter they are looking at 2024 elections? And how would you look at that? 
Well, that's uh, no the project of what we are referring to as the project of the Hindutva or Hindu Rashtra that uh, the Indian right is currently uh, no quite uh, mobilized to kind of institutionalize. I think goes way beyond uh, Islamophobia. It is not just about uh, majoritarianism. Is not just about uh, religious uh, discrimination. Uh, uh, Hindutva is an alternative, as I see it, is an alternative social vision. Uh, and its uh, its sources of its uh, consent go way beyond targeting the religious minorities. Uh, India, in that sense, I've also written that India uh, is not Islamophobic. You know, this whole uh, that's a simple-minded kind of a narrative that has been built by secularists to oppose the right-wing, uh, you know, uh, what we call communalism. That on one hand you have communalism, therefore there is Islamophobia. But I don't think there is any that kind of a simple-minded uh, Islamophobia. We have to treat. Uh, right-wing uh, project as reconstructing the entire idea of social power in, in, in completely different uh, registers. So they are also reworking the inner relations between subcastes within Dalits and OBCs. They are reworking the relations between OBCs and Dalits. They are talking about sects within Muslims. For instance, they have been uh, raising the issue of Pasmanda Muslims that you must be aware of. Linguistic groups issue has come back. You know, they have reworked the center-state relations. But in all of that, the important point, uh, Tusharika, is that they have managed to appropriate the liberal, secular, progressive uh, concepts and categories. They have kind of you know, co-opted them and turned them on their head. You know, for instance, to give you a very quick and a simple example is that uh, BJP was one party which was at the forefront of supporting formation of uh, smaller states, you know, in, and, and they, have, they have depicted it as the uh, strengthening of federalism. But what they see, the opportunity is that uh, more smaller states would actually mean more power to center, that you have, have a formidable center. You know, so they actually see in formation of smaller states, more centralized uh, form of governance, which is what uh, they believe in. So this is a kind of, to give you a quick example in terms of how they are, you know, Similarly, what they're doing with caste, you know, that uh, fra- fragmenting, you know, Dalits into their sub-caste would actually mean uh, weakening the Dalit Bahujan uh, project, alternative anti-caste politics and strengthening the hold of the uh, caste Hindus. So this is what, uh, you know, but this is working partly because that this social fragmentation that they are uh, attempting uh, works through certain kind of mutual prejudices that exist on ground between Dalits, OBCs and Muslims, which is what I have referred elsewhere as a project of secular sectarianism, that these groups have over a period of time become, the secular project in India has become fairly sectarian, socially ghettoized and very inward looking. So in that sense, uh, I would argue that uh, Hindutva therefore is also a bottom-up uh, process, you know, that it's not merely being imposed from above, but they are managing to connect to the dynamics of social power that exists uh, within these groups. And that's what takes us to your you know, later part of your question that what should then opposition parties really do? You know, that's where I think the opposition parties are, are really at a loss. You know, that uh, as you have seen that when there, when there is violence against Muslims, uh, you know, a party like Congress party is neither able to defend Muslims uh, nor able to have an appeal to Hindus, you know, that uh, they're, 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 they're flummoxed, you know, that they're being bulldozed and cornered, that they really do not know where do these fault lines exist. That, uh, uh, 
so they uh, so they, they 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 go silent on most of the issues when there is mob lynching against muslims most regional so called secular parties are uh, silent witnesses you know they don't uh, they no don't come to the defense of muslims because they think that would kind of uh, uh, have a backlash hindu backlash in the process what is happening is that muslims are unhappy with secular parties for uh, not standing up and hindus are unhappy with secular parties thinking that they are pro muslim so they actually lose the wo- uh, support of both uh, constituencies while bjp interestingly gains hindu support because it target muslims but it has also made an overreach to muslims by raising issues of pasmanda muslims so on and so forth so they actually are trying to gain uh, support of both ends of you know social spectrum similarly they are doing something with you know dalit and uh, obc question that you know they they raise both ends and they when somebody like congress uh, takes a pro dalit uh, stand obcs are very unhappy with congress thinking that it is a pro dalit party so things of this kind i think uh, uh, it's a, it's a big therefore you have to understand hindutva in terms of its reworking of social order how they are managing and only that i think is what that's what i meant once you understand that matrix and echo chamber that's when you'll understand what is the right entry point where are the correct fault lines for instance i have argued uh, in some of even my re- recent interviews that i think congress should manage to take a more explicit position on uh, uh, certain modes of extremist uh, uh, political formations among uh, religious minorities and that will give some you know kind of uh, uh, opening up within this kind of a consolidated majority and psyche that hindus uh, seem to have got locked into no i mean that's very interesting in fact if i may add and a very little experience that i have so far done uh, that's also one of my phd thesis actually that says that uh, it's hindutva uh, is not exactly about you know anti islamophobia this you have to look beyond that and which you've rightly said about you know looking at the social order of it and i think that's that's a very good starting point to look at um so you know just moving to the next part of my you know questions and uh, the next two questions are particularly um, related to methodology and the process of writing and you know i'm always intrigued by this process of doing things um the other thing i want to point out is about the book is that the chapters are they're not very long so i mean they they kind of break down the way you have broken down if broken down conceptually complex you know uh, themes you know and i think it's it's something that it caters to audience across different levels and and and, and i think that if if you been picked up and read by you know non academic people also they would have this understanding about it so how important is methodology for you and how do you place your work in terms of the methodological contribution well that's an important question because you know uh, my method essentially is uh, i i see it as an interpretative exercise uh, based on categories and concepts that i draw from uh, critical social theory you know contemporary critical theory uh, debates within contemporary critical theory and how i try to bring in with uh, some of the later theories of cultural sociology and so on and so forth uh and this interpretative exercise uh, obviously has uh, an underlying theoretical assumption between part and whole that you no know, part and whole are uh, engaged in some kind of a circular relation you know that a part emerges out of whole and the whole emerges out of part so you need the big picture to understand the context of what what is going on in indian context and then you 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 also have to interpret uh, the the micro sociological events through that big picture so i i study newspaper reports Uh, I study speeches, uh, events, 
I've, I've studied policies of the right-wing regime uh, very, very closely. I do, I do support them through brief field studies, mostly through purposive sampling. Uh, 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 and therefore, there is a qualitative analysis. So that's been my broad you know, methodological uh, that I don't do much of quantitative uh, kind of uh, uh, study. And so therefore, I would also add, because since you've raised the question of uh, methodology, that you know, I strongly feel that uh, methodology fetish has kind of killed fertile imagination that social scientists need, you know. Uh, and also the rigid specialization has also killed our ability to see the big picture. Uh, I think there's uh, uh, within which micro sociological details actually make sense. Uh, not too much of uh, methodological fetish, I think, uh, kills our ability to be to tell a good story. Uh, and I see research as a good and a long conversation that is open ended in nature. Uh, but I do say there's an importance of evidence and things of that kind, but uh, uh, reducing it to some kind of an empiricism of its own sort, I think, has proved to be by and large counterproductive uh, for social scientists. You know? So I draw here from ideas of uh, methods of radical contextualism that you know, Lawrence Grossberg and Stuart Hall, where they suggest that uh, context cannot speak for itself. We need to interpret it. Uh, contexts are invisible. You know, if I may quote them, they say they must be teased out, made visible, and this is facilitated by theoretical contextualist uh, framework. You know, so uh, somewhere down, uh, yeah. uh, we, we seem to be confusing. Um, okay, so... uh, just to add the last bit, we seem to be confusing conformism for rigor and uh, empiricism for method. You know, I, I'm reminded of you know historian D.D. Kosambi, what he said speaking about Marxism. No, he said that it's, it is a method of thinking and not a substitute to thinking. Wow. Right. Very interesting. I never thought it that way. So method is not going to do things for us. You know, it, it is, method is only facilitating. But much of social science, as I see, uh, it's like, they, they, it's like a, you know, a, a systems thing that you put in, into a machine and things will come out. Uh, no, that I don't think uh, we need a robust interpretative uh, interpolation that uh, needs to be done. Apologies, there was some disconnection, but we're back again. Um, so I'm coming to us almost the end of the podcast. And, you know, I wanted to know um, what are your upcoming projects and how do you decide what will be your next progression academically? Well, I think there are two ways of uh, going about it. The, the way I do it, you know, one, uh, I'm engaged with uh, questions that I locate uh, within the kind of uh, uh, current theoretical uh, readings that I keep doing. Like for instance, the the question that I'm today engaged with is looking at some of the debates within contemporary critical theory and its interface with uh, cultural sociology, you know, that of Jeffrey Alexander and others. So there are these big time theoretical questions at the back of my head, uh, but I'm uh, uh, but I'm invested in looking through those questions. I'm trying to look and interpret the current developments uh, in India. That's how I kind of rework. Uh, so that's 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 the kind of thing. How that's what decides what uh, you know future projects I do. What kind of questions I pick up. You know, in a way, I'm trying to answer in my own head those big theoretical questions by interpreting the developments uh, uh, in the in, in the current context in India. So that's, that's the focus. And therefore, in that context, I'm trying to 
kind of work on putting together the character of uh, social narratives, counter narratives that have emerged in India in the last 10 years, you know, the, what kind of counter narratives existed, did they really work? So that's something that I'm trying to work towards. I'm also trying to put together all my long research articles published in various international journals, edited volumes together as a, in a book, uh, bringing together and uh, uh, maybe in that volume, I wish to more explicitly address the theoretical concerns that I have. Uh, you know, in these uh, uh, the books that you have, that book that we are discussing, I don't get explicitly into theoretical questions. They are, they are there all around, but I don't kind of theorize uh, them directly. Uh, since I've written some of this my, my recent stuff for much larger audience beyond the academia, so this is something I want to go, get back to. Uh, hopefully, if we have good results in 2024, we can have more leisure at hand on hand and you know, do a more uh, theoretical kind of uh, work. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Maybe we can have another podcast on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, so this is almost the last question I have for you. And this is a question I usually ask everyone. What is that one book that you would recommend everyone should read? Well, uh, uh, no, Tusharika, I'm too eclectic to suggest that single book. You know, I draw from a lot of sources, you know, from social psychology to critical theory to cultural sociology. More recently, I've been reading stuff on emotion studies. Uh, I've just completed uh, reading Wendy Brown's book on nihilistic times. Uh, so, so I read a very large range of, you know, as I said, as questions come up in my mind, I kind of follow that part dependency track and pick up you know, books that help me address uh, those questions. So uh, I'm not uh, 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 a very faithful to any of these uh, theoretical systems. So, so, so there's a lot of infidelity. You know, that's where I kind of uh, read books across and I'm thankful to actually some of my students you know who helped me download range because I have such vast kind of very differentiated readings obviously I can't buy all these books my, my students helped me download books from I don't know God God knows where but even latest books they download and give away to my free and so, so that's what is helping me going <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fantastic. But was there any any particular book that influenced your academic thinking when you were growing up? Well, uh, very very difficult to say. It's one uh, book, you know, uh, because I've, I've you know even from since my days of early MPhil, you know, I did my MPhil on uh, uh, looking at uh, you know structuralist debate between Thompson and Althusser. Then I did on Laclave and Move, and then on New Left. So I've always tried to kind of combine a theoretical system. None of the theoretical systems itself kind of fascinates me. You know, that's more the interface between them that I look for uh, new questions that one can raise, keeping the ear to the ground uh, in the Indian context. So I always looked at one, uh, you know, contesting frameworks at one level and questions that come up through that contestation. I looked at the lived uh, reality in the Indian context. So I, I, I'm actually faithful only to this tension not to any of these theoretical systems per se. Even when you look at reality, you know, people say that my writings at one level are too realistic and some say they are actually normatively, uh, you know, there's a lot of normative weight uh, that I bring in. So, so I want to leave that open-ended and that open-ended needs, I think, some kind of infidelity. Uh, 
<laughs> on that note and thank you thank you so much Aja it's been a fantastic conversation and I look forward to reading more of your work also editing <laughs> hopefully and and thank you and I hope that everybody reads this book and you know at least learn this that they they could get so much from this book and understand about emotion and politics and yeah thank you so much Thanks, Sushanta. Thanks for this great opportunity to explain things that were, you know, kind of smudged in the work. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.